Welcome to the Choosing to Create podcast, where we explore what moves us to make something, what cultivates the conditions for us to create, what sparks us to dream of a new kind of world, and then create what we want to see in it. We'll have conversations with artists and activists, cultural workers and change makers who are deeply committed to making an impact in the world. Join us as we examine the intersections of art, awareness, and activism, and look at how these threads weave themselves together to influence what we create and offer to the world. Lucia Mohuden, based in New York, is a master trainer, facilitator, coach, and strategist who pioneered the integration of somatics into an organizing framework. Rusia is the founder and principal of Universal Partnership and the founder of Mamukti. Her current mission through Universal Partnership has been developing a holistic model for social justice change work that places in its center the necessary transformation of social change agents. Rusia brings a unique style to creating pathways for individuals to bring their best selves forward when enacting social change in their organizations and communities. Rusia also developed a model for coaching social change agents called Embodied Coaching that is based on her developed model of embodied leadership. Today, we'll be talking with Rusia about how her family's history of living in service to others influenced her to continue that legacy. She shares with us how approaching her organizing in a more mindful and contemplative way brought her back to her art making. We explore art making as a political and spiritual practice and discuss how both creating art and working towards social change can be powerful acts of alignment with one's true self and values. I'm Desiree Aspiras, and I'm your host, and this is the Choosing to Create podcast. Just to get us warmed up, if you'd like to share a little bit about the snapshot of who you are and what you're doing right now in this current moment of time, I know you do a lot of things. I do a lot. I do a lot. Yeah. My name is Rusia Mohutin. I am a consultant. Well, one part of my life is as a consultant the principal at Universal Partnership, which is my national consulting practice. And I work with a bunch of social justice oriented, grounded in those values, organizations, nonprofits. And then the other half of my life is as the founder and co-director of an organization that I founded to for my beloved mother in memory of my beloved mother called Ma Mukti. Mukti was her first name, and it means liberation. That will launch on her birthday this year at the end of August, August 31st. August 31st. Lots of stuff coming up this August. And related to your mom, I was reading about the foundation and how her and so much of the work that she did and that her name means liberation. And it reminded me of my maternal grandmother in the Philippines, Dolores Dule, her name, Dolores, meant suffering and <laughs> pain. 
she was a doctor to the poor her whole life. So when I was reading about what you're doing with the foundation and its goal to essentially serve the poor, is that correct? Well, the part of it that doesn't necessarily, that happens in this country, but then also with the aspiration of going to Bangladesh and some other developing countries is to feed, clothes and educate the poor, like people who are living in abject poverty. So I think it's important to say that my mother being named Liberation Mukti is not a mistake. Her father was the founding father of the independent struggle in Bangladesh. His name was Mushyur Rahman Jadumia. His nickname was Jadumia, which meant magic man. So it makes sense that a revolutionary that brought independence to Bangladesh before the cessation of Bangladesh was formerly East Pakistan. So it makes sense that a revolutionary would name his first child Liberation. Like that just makes sense. Powerful name. Yeah, it's beautiful. My mother was an artist, by the way, a trained artist. So this feels all sorts of relevant. But she used the creativity of of her teachings and her natural talents to like think about how she could do politics, think about how she could serve women and poor folks living in ab- abject poverty. But she would gather clothing and food and wait until it was dark like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and then would go to the poor parts of Dhaka, which is the capital of Bangladesh and other villages, because she knew that was when people were at home. And she wanted to make sure she could give it directly to the folk. She didn't do it necessarily so people could see her do it, which is when people do it in the daytime. But she wanted people to have the thing, so she would feed folks, clothe folks, do all these things that she wouldn't tell anybody about. But every now and then she would like tell me the story as like a lesson, like you could do this too, you should do this too. Because she understood there was a lot of privilege living outside of Bangladesh, particularly in the United States, and that we had more than we need. We're not like uber capitalists and like materialistic, but even then we have way more than we need. And so when we were done with something, she was like, put it away, put it in a suitcase. There's always people going home. Bring it back to the folks because it has use. It could close someone. It can make someone feel warm. It can make someone feel whole. They can tap into their dignity and the humanity with this thing that is no longer useful to you. So we wanted to honor some of these like main things. And the core part of Mamukti organization will be to advance the leadership of women across our movements as like a real organizing campaign, really aimed at like who's on the front lines, like any victory, any material change that happens in the United States, particularly, but really all over the world, the front lines are filled with people who look like you and I, right? Black, brown, women. And so We've developed a whole sort of one-year leadership cohort, a summit that really works to instill a certain amount of skills and qualities, bring folks together, celebrate us, celebrate our joy, all nestled under the goal, the aspiration of really advancing women of color leadership, both 
both cultivating it on an individual level, but centering it on a collective level. And we're working on some surveys, sort of making meaning out of the data to really figure out a strategy of how women and women of color specifically take on more and more mantles of leadership across our movements. We're the ones on the front line. We make the things happen and it makes sense for us to be leading our movements and sort of closing this. There's like a great disparity between who foundations fund, like what kind of work they fund. That's like doesn't exist without us. Yet there's less than 1% of the $65 billion that goes into giving that goes to women of color. It's shocking, but not shocking. And we're hoping to like close that gap a little bit. Move the needle a little bit. As I'm listening to you to share just this one segment of what you're working on, just hearing how some of it is inspired by honoring, paying this forward, cultivating what you've seen as important for the next generation of women leaders. You know, I want to circle back to your mom and you mentioned, you know, some of these things that she would share with you. How old were you? I mean, I, I guess I'm curious about what are some of the earliest memories of her imparting some of what she wanted to see you take up and do? I'm not entirely sure my mother understood what I did, mostly because she really wanted me to be an, a lawyer. It's like a very South Asian thing. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, like those. Yep. <laughs> and then she wanted me to be a lawyer because her real aspiration was for me to get into politics. So she was a former member of parliament, which is following her father. And she really wanted me to be a politician. So she would tell me at a very young age, all the things, like all the stories about my grandfather, about the work that she did. I don't know. I was very young. I could have been like four or five, my earliest memories. And this, you know, my grandfather died when I was six. So lots more stories came after that, right? Just how he went underground, how he fought for people. She showed me there was a series of these Polaroids that somebody took of my grandfather talking to one person on the street. And then every photo after that, first picture was just the crowd just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And that's why they called him Magic Man, because he spoke the language of the people. And, you know, a lot happens like in revolutionaries, they give up a lot around family, money, all this stuff, making a living. They sort of sacrifice a lot of like what we consider as like a typical life in order to do this sort of serving the people work. So she tried to help me understand all of the sort of stories around. She was, the, my mother was the oldest of 11 and she did a lot of caretaking when she hit a certain age. And for me, it was like, I don't understand that. Like, why couldn't you just be a kid? And then she would tell these stories about my grandfather and like how he was trying to create independence for Bangladeshi people, separate from East Pakistan. And that he had a lot of, you know, had a lot of people after him. And then when my mother was born, a lot of people were after her. And then her and my grandmother, her mother, 
told the story of how when she was first born, people were like, you know, we're going to kill Jadumia's first child. We're going to take her and we're going to kill her. So my grandmother would give my mother as an infant to this woman that would take her. And then the translation is begging, but it's basically panhandling is, I think, the term that's used overwhelmingly now here in the U.S., all day to keep my mother safe and then would bring her back at night. So there was these like really political contentious things that happened when she was born. And they would tell me these stories. Like eventually she had to, you know, she moved and lived with her paternal grandmother. That's where my mother really got politicized, like really politicized because her paternal grandmother, every Saturday she would cook all day to feed everybody in her village. And so her paternal grandmother was like incredibly influential in creating this mindset, this hard set of like service, service to human beings. And there was just a lot of, a lot of smaller stories that don't translate well in English, but she grew up in this sort of life of service. Her, everybody sort of did it around her. She expected all her children to do it. And so when we go do these things to continue her legacy, her four children go with her. Her two grandchildren come with us. It feels like a small thing that we could do to honor her. So your mom was a trained artist. You are clearly an artist. How far back does the artistic, the creative piece, how far back does that go? As long as I can remember, I've always sketched. I've always drawn. It's usually been portraits. For as long as I can remember my existence, I've been doing it. I don't consider myself an artist. It's silly, I know. But I, I'm not formally trained. This is literally a gift that I got from my mother, like me and my twin sister got from my mother. My elder sister is an incredibly talented artist, too. She doesn't do it as much, but this just got somehow from her womb into us. Like, while we were in utero, we got this. So I've always drawn. So up until, like, all through college, I was just, like, very, I just did art as, like, recreation, but it was the thing that I did for recreation, and then somewhere when I started, I just stopped for like, I didn't do any art for 15 years. And I just threw myself into this sort of organizing movement work, social justice work. I don't know what happened, but that something clicked. I was like, oh, I got to do something. I got to do something. I mean, this was the most unhealthy part of my life where it's like 13, 14, 15 hour days, days a week. And then I just picked it up. I don't know. I just picked it up and I started drawing portraits. And everyone was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I didn't know you could draw. I'm like, yeah, I just haven't done it for like 15 years. Wow. So my mother is a trained artist. My twin sister is a trained artist. My elder sister and I are, you know, we just do it. We just do it because we like it. I don't think she's done it in a while either, but she's super talented. I realized that there was this like arc of you're working at an untenable pace, right? This idea that this sort of false narrative, this false idea, very capitalistic, that I have to 
extract all this labor for myself and it's okay to do it because it's for a good cause, right? It's, it's for people. It's for people who are struggling. It's for our communities. And it's like my communities, our communities don't need me to add my suffering to alleviate suffering, right? Like that just doesn't compute. So I started to rethink sort of like how to be more mindful and contemplative in my work. And then the art just came back naturally. And it's powerful. It's powerful if you just stop to think about, here's this thing that I did that actually is creating. And it only came back to me once I was like really aware of what I was doing to myself, right? Like getting myself into an early grave, God forbid, by working these obnoxious hours and really not achieving as much as I thought I should have been in. We got a lot done. Yeah. But <laughs> we probably could have done it in, in eight hour, nine hour days. Like we didn't have to, we didn't have to spend the night at the office. It's absurd. But now it's like my self-care. It's my self-care practice. I use the process of creating art as my self-care practice. Because I know you mentioned when you started back into creating, you started with the portraits, a number of different kinds of illustrations. As you started to bring that back into your day, the creative practice and making art, what did you notice in terms of how that was touching on other areas of your work? Well, I do a lot of sort of healing justice, transforming leadership, aligning values. And it's all about centering one's own humanity, right? Like, what is your relationship to yourself first? And then defining what is your relationship with others? How do you cultivate that in a way that is acutely values aligned? And a lot of that has to do with like, breaking the paradigm of like how everything gets commodified particularly in the Western world, particularly in the United States. And so here I am trying to train people on how to have a daily self-care practice that is really about pausing. It's like a revivification process of everything that makes a human being feel alive and then, you know, the popularity of like wellness and self-care started to kick off. And then everybody was like, oh, I haven't seen a movie in two years. Hashtag self-care. Or I got my nails done. <laughs> Hashtag self-care. It's like, oh, I haven't seen my friends in 20 years. I can't. Yes, that's self-care. But it's not the kind of self-care that is actually taking care of the self, right? It's like these things we do because it's joyous. It's like connecting to the vitality of what you are, who you are, and how you want to be in the world. It's the rhythm, the rhythm of your energy. Like when you feel like you're giving it all in one thing and you feel outside of that, outside of the benefit of that, that there's this thing that you do that reminds you that you're a part of everything. We tend to isolate ourselves when we hyper-focus on something for a long period of time. And the act of doing a self-care practice realigns you to like, here you are, center your humanity. Life is supposed to be about joy. Remember the kind of world that you're trying to create. Begin by creating it for yourself. Like the shirt you're wearing, like changing you is changing the world. If we are trying to create more joy in the world, 
how can we rob our own lives of that joy and then still be able to do that in the world? It's sort of like silly a little bit. It's not silly. It's part of what we need to be doing to sustain us. And like you said, to remain aligned. And so this is a near daily practice for you. What is your rhythm with it? Yeah, I mean, if I'm at home and not traveling or training, it is a daily practice. Even if I do like five minutes, like for me, it is like, it's like birthing something new into the world. Even if I take something that's written by some famous person and I rewrite my favorite part of it in my own handwriting, on a paper of my choice, in an ink of my choice, a color of my choice, that famous thing, I'm rebirthing into the world with my own flavor. That's creating. Like people think they have to be like these trained, beautiful, accomplished, blah, 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 things to actually create beautiful art. But it's really just like there is this echo inside of me that I'm releasing through my art, right? And it doesn't have to be my words. It doesn't have to be my art. If I am recreating it, then it is the reverberation of that echo. It comes out with my energy, with my life experiences, with the culmination of everything in that moment. And it's super subtle. Like, I don't actually have to intend for it to be that way. It just is. There's like, art requires effortlessly, like I don't even have to be conscious of it. It effortlessly allows one to be in their whole self. So when I do art, it's my whole self that is there, not fragments of it, not parts of it, not like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, draw from my gut today. No, it's just like the culmination of everything that I am, all that I am into this one thing. And I don't have to do anything to make that true. It just is. That's it. It's intrinsically that way. And it's inherently intimate. Like I started to do all these I haven't even finished yet, but I started to do all these portraits of my family members. There's a bunch of them behind me. I don't know if you can see it, but... I think I see the bottom of the frames. I mean, I started to do like a lot of political portraits of like, obviously Malcolm X, because I'm a Muslim, and he was so brilliant. Audre Lorde, Nina Simone, as many as I could think of, and then... I didn't realize while I was doing all these sort of political figures, but then I sketched my mother. I did a color portrait of my father. And here I am like looking at the finer details of them. Like I look at a picture reference and I was like, those are my eyebrows. Those are my lips. And then I did one of my paternal grandmother because my father's like, do one of my mother, do one of my mother. And I was like, oh, my God, here's my father's. Like, here are all my father's things. But then those are also mine. Something just shifted in my, I feel like it shifted in my brain, but it probably shifted somewhere else in my body first. And then every subsequent portrait I did, because, you know, my sister's really close college friend's father passed. And she asked me to do a portrait of her father. And then it was just like this whole made-up story of this this man's life. I had never met him. I didn't know anything about him. I was doing this as a favor to my sister and to her friend. 
in like a time of really great loss. I can't even articulate what I was getting from this picture, but it was like I knew this man. And all I'm doing is drawing his face in this one moment of his life, whenever it was. And ever since then, I started to like, there was just all these stories and messages coming to me while I was drawing people's faces. And it's, it was so intimate. And I feel like I know these people and I don't, like a lot of them, I just, I, I don't know. My opus, my sort of mixed media opus portrait is of my maternal grandmother, who was my favorite grandparent, who I love dearly. And it is the most like hyper-realistic portrait I've ever done. I cried a lot during it because I miss her terribly. She passed a while ago in 1999 but it just everything felt like reliving these like really deep beautiful experiences and memories of her it took me a while to do but it was a powerful process for me and i don't think i've ever done another portrait without feeling this sort of really intense visceral living the experiences of this person that i'm sketching drawing putting lines on, like definitions, coloring, like giving light, dark, like all this is difficult to explain, which is weird because I'm on a podcast trying to explain all this stuff. I think what you're pointing to is that when you are engaged in the act of creating these portraits, it's a true contemplative act. You are sitting with, you are paying attention to the lines, the shape, the expression of the face in order to, what it sounds like to me, to honor it in the way that you believe it should be honored. There's a real reverence I'm feeling in how you approach the work and that you are truly being present with it. You know, you're not just doing it to get it done. This is a full embodied practice for you, it sounds like. I think it always has been. I just haven't been aware of it. This is why I say it's inherently intimate to do sort of portrait work and art in general, and that it actually requires one's whole self to be a part of it for the creation process. I think it's always been like that, even since I was a little kid drawing the reflection of my bathroom sink for my teacher, right? Like, (laughs) it always has been. It's just, you know, in the last several years that it's been something that I've been aware of. The presence of that has been something that I've been aware of. And it's, you know, it feels revelatory, revolutionary inside of me, right? Like that I can take all these things that are like quietly sort of breathing under my skin and just release it in this thing, this art. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't even have to be good. Most often, I think my art is trash, right? I'm like, oh, this is okay. Not that I'm going to have to more than gently challenge you on that. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, but I really, I really enjoyed carving this block, felt really super meditative. Like, oh my God, I really enjoyed that so much so that I might not even want to print it. I just enjoyed carving it. And then other times, I'm like, oh, this process of printing, like putting this ink on this glass and then rolling and then. Just the act of it will come off this block with this ink onto this paper and what I'm doing is going to get it there. And then it says something to me. 
it's not even words, but it's like, here it is, right? It's like a feeling of like something around transfer of like something inside of me that now is like visually representative, like in this thing. And it's sort of like a sigh, like a, a sigh of relief, it feels like almost. It's weird. It's hard for me to articulate. I'm not doing the greatest job. No, you're doing great. And I'm also, I think about this practice of making art a lot. And I look at the research on the different benefits that it provides with your mental health and everything. But part of what I'm hearing and what you're describing in the process too, that I've thought about as well is how, you know, when we sit down or stand wherever we are to make something, it's offering us so many different things. We're intentionally slowing down. We're intentionally looking. And I think for a lot of people, depending on what's happening in their own personal context, right, in their home and their neighborhood, you know, all the things that are happening, that it can be this one moment where it might be your only moment in the day or the week where you have the autonomy to make these decisions. I want this to be red. I want to carve this line this way. I want to put the ink on this block just so. And like you said, birth this thing. And that that might be the only place for a lot of us where we actually have that much power and agency in what it is we, we want to do. And as I'm saying that out loud right now, I'm realizing like that realizing that's not a small thing to feel what that feels like, that sigh or that momentary sense of, I made these specific choices and this is the thing I made. This is the thing, like you said, whether it's an image or a quote that we are recreating in our own way, weaving it into our body, (laughs) that it's this really powerful way to feel some of these things in our body, in our soma that might ripple outward in other ways. And it's what makes art so powerfully political, period. Also effortlessly political. I don't care who's doing it. We have built a society so opposite of who we are naturally as living beings that when we can pause and do something intentional that is creating whatever it is, writing, drawing, scribbling, dancing, just the act of movement, it is inherently political because we're not meant to do that. Sleep, eat, work, sleep, eat, work, sleep, eat, work. Somehow in that you're supposed to like get married, have kids, (laughs) you know, all the typical American dream, but it's the American dream in the United States, but it's not far from the other ways in which other societies and other countries say, what is a normal, typical life, right? And a lot of us are not whether we intended it to be this way or not, are not living those kinds of typical lives, whatever the June Cleaver, whatever they call it here. I'm not remembering a lot of things right now. (laughs) What was that show? Leave it to Beaver? Yeah, something like that. I mean, I don't know. I have two dogs. I have two (laughs) dogs. I don't have children. I have two dogs. I'm incredibly close to my family. A lot of them live here. My mother lived here before she passed. We are taking care of our father. He lives with me. So it's like not a typical life. I'm not doing a nine to five job. I'm doing a job like I show up when I need to show up. I show up when others need me to show up. 
And then I have to find space for myself when I do this art. And so all of it is like an expression of how life is political. And the art, so much so, like, because I'm not supposed to be doing that, right? I'm supposed to be taking care of kids, cooking, cleaning, working, like, all these bullshit narratives that the society tries to shape us around. And so there are some things in life, in my art, that is, like, very overtly political. And then some pieces that are just a little more subtle, right? Like a little more subtly political. I just finished this piece called The Three Brains. It was based on, you know, one of the first things I learned in my somatic certification and sort of learning process. And I was like, damn, this is really good. Like I really, I was astounded (laughs) when I did the first print. I'm like, how did this turn out so nice? I'm not entirely sure because I was thinking like, oh, this turned out I should have done three separate blocks. All the self-doubt around, creative (laughs) self-doubt around, like, should I? Should I'm like, nah, screw it. I'm just going to do it. And then already thinking about how I could fix it before I even see, like, is it done? And it came out really nice. And my newest piece I just finished carving called The Liberation Tree. What are we fighting for? What are we fighting for? What are the all the things that we are fighting for that allows us to be connected to the natural ways in which living beings should be connected? I think I'm going to print that later today. I'm not entirely sure. I got to look, but it's ready. Like it's super ready. Ooh, I'm I'm excited to see it if you post it. I got your Addy, homie. I'll send you. <laughs> Speaking of printmaking, where did you learn printmaking? When did that start for you? I didn't learn it anymore. During the pandemic, everybody came to me. I was like, everybody come. We'll just stay here. So my elder sister has the two loves of my life, my (laughs) and my niece. And so 10 people, two dogs in a house. (laughs) It's not a a medium-sized house. It's not small, not large. It was incredibly intimate. I'll I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) But I bought a kit for them. I bought a kit for them to do so we could do some art together and keep busy and whatnot because all my gigs canceled, their school canceled. I was like, we got to do something. And so I just remembered that I had it. I did some with them and I really enjoyed carving. Like it just felt very meditative to me. Like here's this thing that I can just gently begin to work on. And then when I'm done, it's something. I carve away all the things that I don't need to end with the thing that I want, right? Like, just think about what I just said, carve away to end with what I want, which is so much of of what we don't do in life to take care of ourselves. Like, let's get rid of the excess. Let's get rid of the baggage. And here I was able to do it in this. I started with like four by six rubber, soft speedball blocks. And I just taught myself by practicing it, really. I asked Maria a few times. I'm like, help me with this negative, positive space thing. Because this doesn't translate from like, (laughs) it's not translating to black paper or white paper. And then she just sort of talked to me through it a little bit. And then I was like, it's still super confusing for me. I don't know why. It's supposed to be simple, but it's just like. It's not figuring out what the background's going to be versus. Yeah, it can mess with you sometimes. I love what you just mentioned, though, because I've never thought of 
printmaking in that way or, or carving in that way that you just mentioned. It's like this practice of what do I not want here? What am I editing? What am I letting go? I mean, it's wild, right? <laughs> I've learned in somatics from many teachers, you know, it's a body-based way of understanding something. And we do a lot of that, right? Like I do a lot of that in my work as like a way of sort of getting to the embodied part of like what serves you right now and what will serve you for this aspirational vision that you have for yourself and your community. And here is art serving it up, like serving up mad lessons. Like in this block, I remove the thing that is like not useful for the thing that I'm trying to create. So if I can do it on a physiological level, then actualizing the letting go and carving away in my real life, whether it's intellectually, emotionally, physically, all three, becomes achievable because I've already done it on this block. I've already done it successfully on this block. And I have muscle memory around that. I have memories inside of my body that knows what it feels like to let go of things that are not a part of what I want to be, who I want to be, and where I want to go. Like I've done it on this block already. I'm not kidding when I say it's my self-care. It's like a serious body-based exercise that allows me to take care of myself in a way that I can reconnect to the things that really matter to me. How can I be a living manifestation of my values? Carve this block. Carve things in this block that isn't a part of the vision that you have for yourself, for this piece. And then I can do that. Carve away the things in my life, the ways that I practice, the pattern ways in which I behave that aren't a part of this vision that I have for myself in the world. Who and how I want to be in the world, how I want to walk the world. And it's powerful. I feel powerful just saying this out loud because most of this has just existed in my head. And I am deeply listening. I mean, I've appreciated carving as a meditative practice. I also do letterpress, you know, setting type, locking all of that up as a practice. But just hearing what you've shared now that this, I mean, really, it's almost a way of being a spiritual practice. It's pointing to how it's all interconnected. This is not separate from the other work that you're doing. Nope, not at all. Developing, achieving, understanding, and being aware of alignment is something that is like a really critical foundational part of my work and who I am. And I don't see it separately. So anything that I do that supports me in being the best version of myself in any given moment has to be political. It has to be connected. It has to be spiritual. And it has to speak to the deeper values that I have for myself and the work that I do. So it's all interconnected. I mean, it has to be because it's coming from me. So everything we do in some way is like, whether we want to recognize it or not, deeply, deeply connected to who we are, because it's all coming from us. It's all coming from me. Mic drop. We're done. That's all we need to say right there. <laughs> I'm just really appreciating now how you're showing up in all of the spaces it's not like you show up in different ways in different spaces. You're showing up as you, not just in your art, but in your your leadership work, in all of your work. And so maybe as we segue to a close, 
just parting words or what would you say to people that might have that social conditioning of I'm not creative, I'm not talented, or even if, you know, drawing this thread to getting engaged in social justice, people who have the thoughts swirling around of, I want to step in, but I am not creative enough, or I haven't stepped into these arenas before. What would you say to them? More likely than not, people are creating. They're just not defining it as art. And in the creation process is something that is coming out that is from inside of them. That is, if they put the intention of deeply understanding it for themselves, they'll see that it's political. They'll see that it's an expression of who they are. And drawing those lines are really important, right? I think it's fine to do art for the sake of art because it's gorgeous anyway, and it will inadvertently be all the things that art is, right? I also think that like doing something also requires beginning to think about it. Just the contemplation of wanting to do it is the desire to do it. And the voice that says, oh, I don't know if I can. I don't know that that voice belongs to people. I think that's the societal shaping that voice belongs to somebody else. Like, and do you really want to do things and not do things based on some implanted voice inside of you that tells you who you should be and what you're, you should do and what you shouldn't do? Recognizing that that voice doesn't belong to you might make it easier for people to be like, yeah, I could do it because I want to do it. I've been thinking about doing it, whether it's art, whether it's social justice, whether it's like wanting to do something slightly different in your life. Particularly on social justice work, people think it needs to be this grand gesture. But if people just begin to align who they are and how they are in the world with what they care about the most, that's social justice work. (laughs) If people can change and align themselves, they are changing and aligning the world. So I think we just sort of need to dismantle some of the grand ways in which we think about doing social justice work, doing political work, doing artwork, when it's really just, it can be a microcosm, a manifestation within ourselves to like actualize a desire we have. It doesn't have to be anything more than that. If we do it for ourselves, we're doing it for the world because we're a part of that world. That is amazing. Thank you. Wisdom from my last day of being in my 40s. Yeah. People who know me, I've always joked. I'm like, I can't wait to be 50 because I'll know more than I do now and hopefully feel even more solid in my body. But yeah, thank you for joining us again. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Choosing to Create podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find this episode's show notes and transcript on our website, choosingtocreate.com, and stay up to date and connect with us on Instagram at choosingtocreate.